Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Trey Taylor. Hi, Trey. Mike, good to see you, buddy. How are you? Great to see you too. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Uh, Trey is uh, what they used to call an office and a gentleman. I, I, I kind of, I met him in person. I was really impressed and I read his book. He's got an awesome, awesome book. And we're going to talk about this book. This is an incredibly powerful book, uh, and the book is called A CEO Only, CEO Only Does Three Things, and uh, it's such a powerful concept that um, I am personally using the book. I am personally uh, trying to focus on those three things because those are the most important things, and everything else, as much as it is uh, fun and interesting and exciting to do or not, shouldn't be CEO's job. So let's dive into this. So before we do that, tell the audience a little bit about you. Uh, where do you live? Family, wife, kid, cats, pets, whatever works for you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so we live about three hours south of uh, Atlanta, and uh, it's our hometown for many generations in the family. Uh, one of the jobs that I have is to run the family business inside of a family office. And so we've decided to do that here great place to raise kids. And Mike, you will laugh at me when I tell you this, but we have just found out that we're expecting a surprise third baby. And oh, so we thought we were God finished. <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, but uh, we, have, uh, we have work yet to do. So we're, we're really excited about that. That's very exciting. It's uh, yeah. kids are a blessing and a joy. And uh, it's, uh, I have, as I said, I have four kids and I call it four monkeys and a cat. So you have three monkeys now. I don't know if you got any cats, but if you have a, if you have a, uh, I guess your kind of family farm, I'm sure you got other animals. Yeah, we got people running all over the place and animals and uh, all that kind of thing. So uh, super excited uh, to welcome uh, that child. Uh, we just found out, so we're super early. So it'll be November of this year. Awesome. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. Now, let's dive into the book and let's dive into some of the key questions. And before we forget. Uh, one of the most important questions, um, what's the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO? We answered that last or a little bit later, but let's start with what are the three things or the only things that CEOs should do? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's my contention that CEOs are very busy doing things that other people are probably better at doing in the first place. And so doing work where you're not called to do it takes a, a sort of an emotional and psychological investment. And if you do too much of that, then, then you get into a stage where you're burning some internal energy on things that are not as important as the things you should be doing. And so when I go through that and I think about it in my own career and in the career of those that I coach and my clients that, uh, that retain me on a consulting basis, we see that the three things that CEOs should be doing and really only doing are culture, people, and numbers. So the culture is that ethical environment and sort of what we, you know, we live in, we swim in, you know, we, we, we work in. It's those unspoken rules largely that govern how we treat each other in the workplace. 
And, you know, what we find is that CEOs that focus on building and grooming and keeping a very healthy culture together uh, don't have the burnout problems. They don't have a lot of the, the, the standard business challenges uh, that other CEOs who prefer not to focus on the culture and who prefer to focus way more on the details and the, the daily to-do list items seem to have. So culture is the most... Uh, the most addressable thing right there. Number two is people. Uh, a CEO, a good CEO, a great CEO has to be interested in the people that are around him. He has to understand those people at a deep psychological uh, level, and he has to uh, you know, manage people, which is a very hard thing to do. If he has the culture right, he should be attracting the right kind of people to work in the, in the culture. If that's the case, then the numbers, the third thing, should be uh, relatively an easy, not, not that it isn't complicated, but an easy result to pull out of those people. And so that's what we think the three things are, culture, people, and numbers. These are very powerful concepts, and I, I happen to agree 100%. And culture means many different things to different people. Uh, but it's interesting that some folks, uh, probably culture includes um, a set of fundamental core values, uh, obviously, and then could also uh, means where the company is going directionally, sort of a little bit of a vision right. and mission, right? All that correct. falls under the culture. So Absolutely any, correct, yeah. Uh, any quick comments on sort of the, the depth of the culture? Because culture is, is, a, is, a, is such, such a broad word that it, it may not be clear, but they sucked a little bit of that sort of the core values, the, the mission, the vision, kind of setting the direction. Uh, are all yeah. those things included? Absolutely. All those things are constituent parts of the culture. The, the most helpful concept that I've come across that, that really gets it across to people is if you trace the Latin root of the word culture, it shares a cognate with the word that we use cultivate today. So if you cultivate a garden today, that means you plant the things that you want to have coming out of the garden. But it also means that you pull the things that are bad for those good things out of the garden. And it is this full-time mentality that you have to keep in. You have to keep that in focus, that this is the way that I want the world to look. And I can impact these 15 or 100 people or however big your company is by having these core values planted in the ground that I defend against things that, uh, that are bad for them and that I nourish with things that I know are good for them. That's really the job of culture. And it sounds a little bit, you know, up in the sky and that sort of thing. But when you're doing culture work, uh, you know it. And you, you can see the benefit coming out of it uh, all the time. Uh, our first engagement is always a long discussion about what the value system is, not what you want it to be, but what it really is. And uh, how it represents the way that you see the world and you think the world should be working. And um, it is often very interesting because I send the CEO back into his organization to observe not what he wants to be true, but what is true. And very often CEOs come back with their head and their hands saying, I can't believe this is the way that we're choosing to do business. And so we do a lot of work at that point. That's very powerful. So the culture is really important, what you, what you said. I just wanted to reiterate. Re, re, 
it, it what it is versus what you want it to be. And perhaps you could move the culture in a direction where you want it to be as a CEO, but you have to be a realist and, and recognize what the culture is today. If the culture is not ideal, that, that you have to work on the culture and, and get it to be uh, where ideally you, your vision of the culture is. Absolutely correct. Yeah, you want your uh, core values to be aspirational to some extent, but you do want them to, to represent things that you are doing on a daily basis because your culture shows up in the behaviors of your people. That's how you know what the culture is. It isn't what you engrave on the wall. Enron had a great mission statement and cultural articulation in gold letters and marble in, in their New York offices, you know, beautiful. But they didn't live those eight feet away in the next conference room. They didn't show up. Those values did not show up in the behaviors of their people. And that's how you know that you're getting it right when you see people acting in the way that you think the world should act. But on the whole, not just your company, but on the whole, that's when you know you're getting it right. Yeah, that's very powerful. And you started this conversation that it starts with culture and you bring in people that fit into the culture. If they don't fit, it's almost like um, bringing an expert in, into uh, the business with a certain set of skills is secondary to bringing the, the person with the right culture. If they don't have the right culture, Absolutely. regardless of their technical skills, you probably don't want to bring them on board because exactly they'll be right. culturally mismatched. Yeah, for my own organization, we have four different interviews. The first one's a culture interview, and the candidate speaks very little because she's not going to tell me or he's not going to tell me anything about my culture. I want to tell that person, this is the culture that you're about to walk into. And if you don't share these uh, values, if you don't share these behaviors, if you don't exhibit this in your, in your daily life unconsciously, you're not going to fit here. I had an interview this morning. The lady showed up seven minutes late, uh, offered no apology or explanation whatsoever, um, was dressed probably not appropriately for the position, and spent the first 35 minutes of the interview telling me why her employer should not have fired her. Uh, so we saw a lot in those behaviors that said that she wasn't a fit. Now, here's the challenge. Do I tell her or do I tell her, oh, we'll follow up later? I told her. I said, look, I think you're probably a very capable person in your job. I think you just you know, went through a situation that was mentally hard for you to be let go from a position. We kind of have all maybe been there in our careers, but you're not going to be a cultural fit for what we're trying to do up here. And that's no slam on you whatsoever, but the values and the way that we do things are very different than the way I think you've been trained to do them. And so rather than go down the whole process of, of uh, all the other interviews, I think it's better if we just wish you well and say, can I help you find a job somewhere else? Yeah, that, that's a great feedback item. You, you, and I, I, I love this. This is, you, you don't wanna put lipstick on something and just delay the inevitable you're better off just tell them straight up. Not a good fit. We are different. We're not saying anything is wrong with what you do, but it just doesn't fit our culture. And let's save you the time and save us the time and the energy. And yes, there's probably a better place for you to uh, to look for the next opportunity. So that makes total sense. Now let's yeah. continue from the, um, back to the people. So uh, one thing I learned again, outside of reading your book, but this is, this is, this is again, years worth of uh, management and leadership training. Uh, 
one thing I learned is CEOs, yes, they 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 manage, but they also lead. And the leadership is more important than management, at least for a CEO role. So um, how do you see CEOs or what is your ideal CEO? What do they do? They spend a lot of time developing other people. And this is what I, this is what I, I I understood as a CEO. You have to spend a good amount of your time developing other people and making sure that they feel happy, they they they, they feel engaged, they feel uh, growing, and uh, this is more important than managing them, uh, leading them, right. and, and and ensuring that they 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 feel empowered and successful is far more valuable. Than a, than a great set of management skills. So what what us just dissect this a little bit, what the book yeah. teaches. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I think uh, the key is, is that the, uh, the CEO, when they are choosing the people are going to make the biggest impact that they're ever going to make on the organization. The people who are actually tasked with doing the work to showing up every day uh, to doing the sales or to doing the, uh, you know, the customer service and that sort of thing. Those are the people that are going to impact the life of the business the most. And so uh, retaining for the CEO a large portion of time in the interview process is very important. And I think that the CEO should retain the final word on who we hire and not. That's not to say that you don't get input from other people in the company. Of course, you should. You have an HR staff and they have certain opinions and those kinds of things, those should be respected. I happen to think that if the CEO is the last word in the interview, uh, they should be going along with what the team says most often and really be the breaks on the process, really be the person that says, well, you all love this person, but I don't feel like they're a cultural fit for these reasons, let's discuss. So that is a huge part of what the CEO should be doing. Most CEOs are not doing the interviewing. Most CEOs are doing a rubber stamp interview at the, at the last interview and say, yeah, okay, this person looks good. I trust you guys. Let's go forward with it. But I think the more you inform the interviewing, the, the recruiting process with your culture and your values, the better results that you're going to get long-term. Secondly, the CEO has a lot of uh, responsibility for retention. People want to feel uh, respected, appreciated, and praised in their role. And that really carries the greatest weight when it comes uh, from the highest point in the organization. So um, there isn't a year that goes by, and I have a very small organization that I don't hand write about 500 cards. Thank you cards, uh, um, uh, cards that say you're doing a great job, cards that say uh, you missed this account, but you'll get the next one, those kinds of things. Cards that go to the children of people that work with me that says your dad is a great resource for our business. Thank you so much for sharing him with us. Uh, your dad just received this award and you should know what that means and why he received it. Those kinds of things. Um, that is a large portion of a working day. You can't cheat it. You can't fake it. People know authenticity when they see it. And that's a big part of why people stay in organizations because they feel respected and appreciated by those who know how to evaluate performance. Yeah, that's a very powerful point. Uh, I, I completely agree. And at the same time, I have to say that going out of your way and writing cards manually in this day and age uh, is an old fashioned uh, methodology, but, I, but sending it to the 
son or a daughter or a spouse is far more impactful than uh, give it, giving it to the person because um, that, 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 that makes, you know, I, I can only imagine if, if my son comes to me and says, daddy, daddy, <laughs> I just got this card and you got this, this recognition and uh, it just, it just, it just looks 10 times better than just call him in the office and say, great job. So it's, yes. it's amazing that this little powerful technique, but it's, it's a remarkable technique. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an element of praise, isn't it? That uh, praise is always valued more the more people hear it. And so we, we praise in public and we correct in private, right? Because it, it works the opposite way as well. So if somebody messes up in my organization, I don't put them on blast on Slack or email or Facebook or something, right? I bring them in. I say, hey, the standards of behavior are this. You did this. You know, can we talk about why you thought that was appropriate? And what do you think you're going to do in the future when faced with similar circumstances? That's it. But to praise, the more, the, the bigger the bullhorn I can get, the more people that can hear me saying that for that person uh, is good. And, and people are so starved for praise, Mike, that most of the time they don't know what to do with it. Most of the time it's an embarrassing situation. Oh, gosh, shucks, I was just doing my job or something of that nature is often the response, but, but we want to get people through that. And, and we have had to teach people, how do, you re, how do you receive praise? How do you receive an award, a gift, uh, recognition, you know, that sort of thing. We, we have actually taught people how to do that, a little, little format on how to do that, uh, because we are starved for praise when we do good work in this world. No, just a, one quick comment on this. Um, this is the reality and people used to unfortunately in this world they used to uh people criticizing them and receiving less praise uh, this statistical point uh, uh that people complain about something seven times more often that they'll actually reach out and say thank you for the great work so the 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 opposite is true uh in a lot of times people will 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 they need the praise because that thank you, that appreciation happens so much less. Uh, just somehow naturally people are just gravitate towards a complaint or unhappy comment when something happens versus the praise. So you, you have to have right. a conscious effort to That's go exactly out of right. your way to basically say thank you as more, more times than you, you would like to. Uh, and it builds, it builds long-term relationships. Uh, one comment that, that one more comment that I have in my experience years ago I learned this most people and again spending a, a corporate career I, I do real estate yeah. now I've had a great career in technology before that and then obviously found my passion doing real estate but in technology world there was a number one rule at least that's what I learned there's a reason why people quit the job or stay in the job so only number one reason and it's not about the pay or the bonus or anything else it's about the relationship with an immediate supervisor yeah. or their boss. And if they have a great relationship reinforced by praises and, and, and thank you, people are a lot more likely to stay and to be motivated and succeed versus go and look for another job if they feel that that relationship is no longer good. Yeah, absolutely agree with you on that. And, and the key point to me is that it has to be authentic. Right. If you have a stack of cards and you have to get those cards done before five o'clock that day and you're sort of scratching your head and saying, thank you for being a part of the team, but I don't really have anything to thank you for. Um, that's not good. You know, that's not the point. 
I have a young lady that works with us and uh, she really wants praise and appreciation. But for the first six months of her job, she really wasn't performing at a level where she was receiving that a lot. And so I sat down with her and said, here's how you get what you really want. You need to do these three things and you need to do them really successfully. She now does those things beautifully. And every time she does one, she makes sure to stop by to get a little uh, praise for what she's done well. It's a good relationship between us because I know what she wants. She's asking for it in the right way. She's performing in the right way. But I have to be attuned as the CEO that that person gets treated than another person that, you know, gets treated differently than another person on the team, for sure. Because the CEO has to realize that every single person is an individual. They're not a number. And you have to treat them and you have to be in relationship with them in that way. If you're in a company of 1,000 people or 28,000 people or something like that, how do you do that? I don't care. But the job is to do that. That's your job to figure out how do you establish as many good relationships as you can impact uh, through your work uh, in your organization. Easy for me. I have 19 people, right? I know every one of them. I know their spouses. I know the names of their children. I've been to the graduations and the births. I've been to funerals. I know what their pets are. I know where they go on vacation. And I don't do it because I need to. I don't have a spreadsheet sitting here reminding me of that, right? I do it because it's the great privilege of my life to work with people who are on the same journey as I am, that we consciously said, we believe these things and we want to see them true in the world. And that's a great compliment to me that I get to spend time with people of like minds. That's awesome. That's, that's uh, genuine caring and genuine leadership. Thank you. Now let's dive into the next point, the numbers. So we covered yeah. the culture, we covered the uh, people now, the numbers. So isn't that a CFO's job? This is the traditional culture where chief financial officer needs to know the numbers. In reality, CEO needs to know the numbers even more than the CFO. So talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I think the CEO's job when it comes to numbers, and CEOs tell me this all the time. I have John over here who's going to do the numbers. He's the best part. So I'm bringing him into this meeting so he can talk numbers. It's not what I'm talking about. Numbers are the things against which we want to be held accountable. They're the scorecard. They're the guidepost on the roadmap. That's what we're talking about. It's the CEO's core function to describe the vision. And the vision has to be described in terms of numbers and metrics and things that we achieve. Managing the reporting on those numbers, managing the, um, the planning on those numbers and those kinds of things can exist in other places. The COO, for example, has a lot to say about the numbers the metrics, how we're going to get there, the mission of the organization. The CFO has a lot to say about, you've set this goal, but I don't know that it's possible under these circumstances. We need to invest money here and that sort of thing. They can have a part of the conversation, but it is the CEO's core function to describe the vision of where he wants the culture and the people to go. And that's what's represented by the numbers. And numbers are not all hard numbers. They're not all top line revenue and bottom line profit expenses in the middle and we spend this much on attorneys and this much on marketing and that kind of stuff. It can also very much be, I want to send 500 thank you cards this year. That's a number. That's an important number for himself. I need to make two strategic hires this year. Those are numbers. Those are things that can be tracked. Um, and so that's why we, we really reserve setting the agenda around culture, setting the agenda around people, setting the agenda around numbers for CEOs and organizations. 
Yeah, that's very powerful. Yeah, in this life, anywhere you go, you always have numbers. I, I, I can't imagine the, 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 there isn't anything out there without numbers. I guess maybe a feeling or or emotion could be without numbers. <laughs> you can still quantify yeah. it. How angry do you feel on a scale of one to ten? Right. That's that's yeah, exactly right. And you go to the hospital now, and they say, "How is your pain on a scale of one to five? You know, and you have to tell them quantifiably, "This is how I'm feeling on my." Uh, on my sorry about that on my uh, pain scale and you know that sort of thing the other thing is that um, you know it, it, it communicates to the organization what you find important so there's no organization in the world that wouldn't communicate hey we have a revenue target we want to do this for sales and revenue and retention target we have a marketing target we have a social impressions target whatever is important to the organization the only way that everybody in the organization is going to see your organization through your eyes is to see the dashboard of numbers that you say are important. Yeah, that's the, I think the behind the scenes word is dashboard and the numbers speak themselves. The, you, w- w- what gets tracked gets done. So if something is tracked, that is important and that means it's, it's going to get done or it's going to get um um, driven to, to, to the goal. That's right. So uh, let's put all those things together, right? So culture, people, numbers, CEO. So what's the difference between good CEO and a great CEO? Well, as you will uh, not be surprised, Mike, because we know each other, I have a story for that. And uh, I love to be a good storyteller. And uh, the, the person that taught me the difference between a good leader and a great leader was my sixth grade algebra teacher, Mrs. Madeline Brownlee. And uh, you've heard me talk about her before, of course, but uh, you know, she was this tall lady. She had a beehive hairdo. Uh, not that I'm old enough that she had a beehive, but that she kept that, you know, that uh, sort of hairstyle her entire career. She had these polyester pantsuits that she wore all the time. And she always had a little brooch on. It was it was a butterfly or a bee or an insect or something like that. That was her ensemble. And she was tough as nails. You know, she didn't let anybody get away with anything. And she was the headmistress for my entire school, but she was my sixth grade math teacher, sort of pre-algebra teacher. And uh, the first day of uh, pre-algebra, I, I came into class and she said, you're going to be the homework monitor. And you're going to take down records of everybody who did their homework, did it well, or didn't do it at all. And I said, uh, oh, great. You know, this is exactly what every sixth or seventh grader wants uh, is to be held up as the policeman of the homework. But that was the job. And so I did that job until one day uh, I had to mark uh, someone uh, off that didn't do their homework. And uh, that person played on the basketball team and he wasn't able to play that week. And, you know, it was big drama, big middle school drama. And I went to her and I said, I don't want to do this job. And she said, do you know why I chose you for that job? And I said, no, I have no idea. This makes no sense to me. And I don't want to do it. I quit. She said, I chose you for that job because you know the difference between right and wrong. And that matters in this world. She said, let me prove it to you. And she pulled the piece of paper up where I had marked the athlete off. And she said, why did you mark yourself off of this list? And I said, because I didn't do the homework. And she did that thing that teachers do, you know, where they pull the glasses down on their nose. And she said, right and wrong matter in this world, Mr. Taylor. I'll see you tomorrow. And then I was dismissed, but I didn't quit. I still had the job. 
she called out of me something that she could see. That's called perception. She perceived something before I could see it in myself. And then she evoked it in a process, evocation, which means to call from within. She called that out of me. And it's one of the great things about myself that I appreciate today is that I do have the ability to determine, to discern between right behavior and wrong behavior for a given situation, for a moral situation, for a strategic situation. That is a gift that I have, but I never would have known it if she didn't call it out of me. The chairman of my board uh, was hired the same day that Jack Welch was hired at GE. They were both lower level sales managers given small territories and they flew around. They both climbed the ranks uh, well in the company and Jack climbed it obviously very well and ended up as the CEO. My chairman, my friend, he left 20 years before that happened, but he said everyone always knew that Jack Welch was going to be the CEO of GE. There was never a question when you were in the room with him that he was going to be the CEO. It just so happened that my chairman and I, we do a one-on-one every, every uh, month. He was in my office the day that Jack passed away. I mentioned to him, did you see where Jack Welch had passed away? He hadn't laid eyes on Jack for 44 years. And he was immediately in tears because Jack Welch would come up to him and say, George, you're going to be the best plastics salesman in the entire world if you keep up doing the things that you're doing. This is a contemporary of his. He was nine months younger than Jack. It wasn't he was 15 years younger. You know, it wasn't his superior telling him this. And Jack was doing that all over the place all the time, praising people, seeing gifts in them and calling them out. And 44 years later, it was emotional enough that my chairman, my friend, felt like he had lost something in the world. That's what great CEOs do. Good CEOs, just read my book. Great CEOs put it into practice. <laughs> The words of the wise. Uh, yeah. I, I, I really appreciate uh, your sharing and, and, and uh, uh, the, the foundational knowledge as well as the uh, key point, what makes a great CEO. And yes, Jack Welsh was a great CEO. And he, I remember uh, even his books, he was really a great straight shooter. I think really, really good CEO straight from the gut. As, uh, it takes that. You have to be, uh, it's part of the core values. It's part of the culture. And I can't imagine uh, very successful CEOs who just, you know, become the Enron CEOs of the world because the right. culture will, will either show itself or will disappear. So that, that, that makes massive difference. And at the end of the day, you could have great successful companies um, and then you could have completely failed companies. But I do have a follow-up question. Yes. Why is G struggling now? Do you know? After Jack left, I think he, he left I, I, it I, in I, great shape. I, I, I'm, I'm to, to the day I'm still puzzled. It was a great company, and now the Jack left. I don't know what happened, but they, they, they've been struggling. Well, we do know, right? So we know that it's the CEO ignoring culture. So that CEO says, "Look, we're a conglomerate. Each of our individual." Companies should act in their own ways. So he did that for, for several years. It's people. So when he was named, this is Jeff Immelt that I'm talking about that took yeah. over from Jack. He's been another CEO since then. Uh, when he left, then all of the three lieutenants who were vying for that job also left. Robert Nardelli went to Home Depot, and I forget the other guys and where they went. But you had a big brain drain. And when a big guy leaves like that, 
he's going to take really good people with him as well. So there was some of that going on for sure. And then the numbers, it was not an execution-based culture. So no one was really focused on what the numbers were and what they should be and that sort of thing. And then you didn't have the people who could execute on that because the culture didn't value any of that. The other thing that happened, I think, you can write a book when, on that. <laughs> you could, yeah, yeah. But what have. happened to GF to Jack Welch? <laughs> but I think the other thing is that Jack had built a bit of a cult of personality around him because he was that sort of eminently quotable person, uh, and he related well to people. His successors were not that, but thought that that was part of the job description that they had to have a little cult of personality. They had to speak on stages. They had to write books. They had to do those kinds of things, all of which are great things if you've done the work around the campfire. And they weren't doing that kind of work, uh, at least as effectively as Jack had been able to do it. Maybe it's an unfair uh, comparison, but I think GE's done now, right? At the end of this year, the breakup has happened and they're all gone. Yeah, I, I haven't checked the latest, but I, I think they are. Yeah, there is maybe there'll something will still be left of the GE. Um, uh, again, I don't quote me on this because I'm not sure, yeah. but it certainly is going it, to, it's already a, a, a shadow of the company what it used to be. And yeah. I, I've seen this with a few other really great companies, kind of uh, American icons. Obviously, uh, GE is one of them. The other one that's kind of dear to my heart is Eastman Kodak. Uh, yeah. They lost their. Uh, they groove and they, they, they lost the market and, and a few other companies have go through this and it's, it's unfortunate, um, especially in big companies, CEOs can make such a big difference. So, It's amazing. Uh, with, with Kodak, uh, a friend of mine was the uh, chief marketing officer there and he, he was called into the CEO's office one day and handed a digital camera. And the, and the CEO says, look what we developed this is what's wrong with this company is we're building products that don't use film. That was a cultural issue right there, right? That was a culture not respecting innovation, which Kodak had always done. Yeah, not they developed innovation. the digital cameras. This is the shame. They developed the digital camera. I know the history. My sister still works at Eastman Kodak. She's been uh, there for, for forever. She's yeah. a, a PhD in chemistry. She's been there for, but, but the, the point here is that uh, that fact that, Eastman Kodak de developed digital camera and then realized that it, it the, this great innovation is going to compete with a film line and they didn't want to lose the film line awesome revenues and awesome profits. Uh, instead, they let other companies do it and eat their lunch and basically destroy them. It just uh, They just chose to be um, the dinosaur versus the innovator. Yeah, if they had gone full bore after that with an IP platform, you know, patents and trademarks and all that sort of thing. Every iPhone picture today that we took, we, we could be paying Kodak for it, right? And they didn't understand. They thought they were in the film business, not the photography business. So That's easy right. for us to analyze, but, uh, but very, very different. And, and you know, I'll, I'll say one other thing just because it, it suggests itself to me. We, I took my wife to the first couple of uh, doctor's visits for the, for the new baby. Worst experience you can imagine. The most joyous time in your life, and it, you're treated like a cattle, you know, prodded and pushed to run through this and that sort of thing. The whole practice is missing the opportunity to make it an experience. And are you going to turn down the ability to pay money for some experience involving your child? No, 
you'll pay any amount of money. They once they've got me in the door, they could tell me it cost a million dollars and man, we'll figure out a way to pay that, you know, and they could have showers and they could have pictures and experience it. They don't do any of that. It's all a medical thing. It's them visioning their business incorrectly. They're not in the baby delivering business. They're in the baby experience business. And I don't think they see that. So that's another example of, of uh, a CEO probably not catching the culture of the times very well there. Yeah, you may want to go back to the shop and, and ask to speak with a CEO and, and see if they, if they, if they have their uh, culture right. Uh, it is, unfortunately, like you said, a lot of businesses, they, they still function but they, they don't have the right vision and mission. And especially with, with kids, your point is absolutely right, uh, that the parents will do anything and everything for the kids. Anything, yeah. And, and yeah. This, is, this is the first step of that journey is before the baby is born, but it's part of the process. That, that it's, That's right. It's the first very early step, but it, it's, it's still the same journey, so. Yeah. You get me. You do. Well, Thank Mike, you kindly really, for your wisdom. Yeah. Um, all good things must come to an end, and so does this interview. And uh, the question is, how would folks reach to you for consulting, for coaching? And um, once again, we got to bring the book, which is available on Amazon and Audible, and I am reading and Audible. Audible. It's yes, the excellent. only does three things. So what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, our website is uh, trinity-blue.com. That's a consulting company website. We do uh, sort of boot camps where we come in and, and, uh, and, and push and prod and get executive teams recognizing challenges. If they then need help on those challenges, then we offer coaching uh, individually as well. Uh, I do all the CEO coaching myself, and then I have a good team around uh, other C-suite members as well so that we can bring it all uh, into the same level of focus. Thank you for sharing and thank you for your wisdom and thank you for writing the book and sharing it with the world. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Trey. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.